Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's wrong to end a sentence with... Preposition? Why? Because it's not a complete thought. Some would say a preposition. I think that there's some old grammatic rules that say that it's inappropriate, but I think the new school of thought is that it's actually okay now. I have no idea. (laughs) It's wrong to end a sentence with... No punctuation. (laughs) Have you ever heard that it's wrong to end a sentence with a preposition? Yeah, but that's incorrect. Why is it incorrect? Well, linguistically, we're basing it... It's something of the difference between, like, Latin and Germanic languages, and it sounds wrong to us to end it with a preposition, but it's grammatically fine. Do you end sentences with prepositions? To piss people off, sometimes I'll do. (laughs) (laughs) From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a new podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield in the role of inquisitive ignoramus. With me is my pal Mike Volo, who is an inquisitive unignoramus. Mike is a language junkie, a word puzzler, and an inveterate producer. And therefore, he will be our guide through the wonderful world of language. Now, we're not quite sure what Lexicon Valley will be, ultimately, We're kind of counting on you, the soon-to-be-faithful listener, to help figure that out for us. But we've got to start somewhere. So, Mike, where will that somewhere be? You know, Bob, before we start, I want to ask you the same thing. What does the phrase, a podcast about language, conjure up for you? Well, pet peeves about usage and etymology. Sure. And in calling this a podcast about language, that's broad enough that I think we could talk about everything from syntax to sociolinguistics to neurolinguistics to even the death of languages. All right. So here we are on our maiden voyage, and we're already (laughs) in a major digression. I'm going to answer the question I posed to you. We're going to begin with one of the most notorious prescriptions our own personal English teachers ever had to offer, and that is Never end a sentence with a preposition. So where's this discussion going to lead us to? 
Well, I thought this was a good place to start. Wait, wait, wait. You see what I did there? Yeah. To where shall we be led by this uh, discussion? See what I did? I, I, yeah. I'm going to choose to ignore that joke. This is a good place to start because it really is one of the biggest myths in the English language, this idea that we're not supposed to end sentences with prepositions. In fact, I'm sure most of us remember learning this as a kind of dogmatic rule as a kid. What I don't remember, though, is learning a reason for the rule. Did you learn, Bob, why? No, the nuns just smacked me with a ruler again and again and again. You didn't go to parochial school, did you? No, I'm, I'm Jewish, actually. That was a lie. So what's the answer to your question? If it's a myth, where did the mythology begin? It turns out that this objection to preposition stranding, as it's sometimes called, has been around consistently for a very long time. In the 1760s, for example, Robert Louth, who was a bishop in the Church of England and a kind of self-styled English-language scholar, published a book called A Short Introduction to English Grammar. In it, he wrote that placing a preposition inside the sentence, not at the end, is, quote, more graceful as well as more perspicuous and agrees much better with the solemn and elevated style. He then went on to name names, writers who had violated this rule of sorts, including Shakespeare. Who servest thou under? King Henry V asks of Williams, a soldier in his army. In As You Like It, Rosalind asks Orlando, who do you speak to? Yeah, that's Shakespeare. He was so sloppy. It's a scandal that he's even still part of the curriculum. <laughs> a full century later, in the 1860s, Henry Alford, also a preacher, also a language scholar, published a book called The Queen's English, in which he wrote, quote, There is a peculiar use of prepositions which is allowable in moderation, but must not be too often resorted to. It is the placing them at the end of a sentence, as I have just done in the words resorted to. If we skip ahead to the early 20th century, the Fowler brothers, Henry and Francis, published The King's English, in which they refer to the, quote, modern superstition against putting a preposition at the end. Of course, that superstition wasn't modern even then. Now, I happen to know, because we've had this conversation before, Mike, that there was a long and winding path to get to Henry Fowler's view on prepositional stranding. It begins a little after Shakespeare, right? Fifty or so years after Shakespeare, exactly. The whole saga of this objection to preposition stranding begins with a guy named John Dryden, who was a poet and a critic and a playwright in the 1600s. Before we talk about Dryden, though, let's establish what was happening politically in England at the time. In the mid-1600s, there was a civil war that pitted the Parliament against the monarchy of King Charles I. Long story short, the parliamentarians win— Charles I was put on trial, ultimately beheaded, and a period of parliamentary rule replaced the monarchy. Now, many members of parliament and their supporters were Puritans, and Puritans were famous for being puritanical. They were fundamentalist Protestants. Yes, and they banned many of the traditional vices, drinking, gambling. They also banned what many considered a vice at the time— the theater. You know, I don't know about theater per se, but I know that actors and playwrights were considered vulgarians and 
little above thieves and prostitutes. They were an underclass. Not unlike today. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I've been reading too much TMZ. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Lindsay Lohan excluded. All right. So the Puritans did not like theater. And so for a period of time, the theater was legally forbidden. Later on, the monarchy was restored. The son of Charles I, Charles II, became king. He had been living in exile in Europe and had no such puritanical problems with the stage, so he reopened all the theaters. But But there's a problem with opening the theaters. There have been no new plays written for the last two decades almost. So that's Jack Lynch on a very bad phone line. He's a professor of English at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and he is the author of The Lexicographer's Dilemma. He says that the theater operators didn't have much in the way of new material to stage. So they have to look back to the last age to find plays that work. And there's a kind of rivalry going on in the 17th century over the current age and the last age. Some people are now looking back to the age of Shakespeare and Ben Jonson as the greatest age in English literary culture. Dryden is trying to make a living as a poet and a playwright in his own day, and he's trying to make the case that we've got something to say as well. Around this time, Dryden writes a drama called The Conquest of Granada. And at the very end of the play, there was a very short epilogue in rhyming verse. Yeah, a little coda like Shakespeare in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, Shakespeare did it in A Midsummer Night's Dream. He did it in a few other plays. A narrator will come out, sort of praise the audience for their good taste in attending this play, maybe praise the actors, perhaps ask for some applause. The narrator ingratiates himself to the audience, typically. Dryden did something a little different. He actually criticizes his audience for being too fond of the writers of what he calls the last age. And he specifically singles out Ben Jonson, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare. He points out that Ben Jonson's age was actually backwards, and he says that his own contemporaries are better writers. Of course, part of his meaning was that he is a better writer. This wasn't entirely disinterested advice. But he announces to the world through his epilogue that wit now arrived to a more high degree, our native language more refined and free, our ladies and our men now speak more wit in conversation than those poets writ. So he's making the case that his own age and his own plays are more advanced, more sophisticated, more correct than the age of Ben Jonson and Shakespeare. Okay, Mike, so far so good. John Dryden is a self-aggrandizing dick. Uh, I know we promised a long and winding road, but I'm having trouble seeing how this road leads anywhere to dangling prepositions. So uh, what's the deal? Well, a year and a half later, Dryden decides to publish his play, The Conquest of Granada, in book form. People were urging him not to include the epilogue because it really pissed people off and made him sound like a jerk. Not only does he include the epilogue, but he adds a prose essay, a kind of postscript that he calls defense of the epilogue, where he catalogs in even greater detail the many ways in which the great writers of the previous age are in fact inferior. He says, quote, 
Let any man who understands English read diligently the works of Shakespeare and Fletcher, and I dare undertake that he will find in every page either some solecism of speech or some notorious flaw in sense. And yet these men are reverenced when we are not forgiven. It reminds me of when Jonathan Franzen refused to go on Oprah because the tastes of the public were so beneath him. Oh, yeah, that's what we want to do in our inaugural podcast about language, attack and alienate Jonathan Franzen. I, you know, I compared him to John Dryden. Who can be upset with that? In any case, Dryden spends much of the essay critiquing the language specifically and grammar of, for example, Ben Jonson. Ben Jonson was the most learned of the playwrights of the early 17th century, and he picks one of Jonson's most classically structured plays, a play called Catiline, and he quotes two lines. The waves and dens of beasts could not receive the bodies that those souls were frighted from. And he follows that up with his own little notation, the preposition in the end of the sentence, a common fault with him. This is the first really clear statement of anyone having specific trouble with prepositions at the end of a sentence. No one had ever said the preposition in the end of the sentence, a common fault. But Dryden looks at Johnson, sees the bodies these souls were frighted from, and says, that's wrong. At last, we're here. Ben Johnson breaks the dangling preposition rule. Then what happens? Well, I asked Jack Lynch, why would he consider it a fault. In Latin, which many writers of this day considered the ideal model of a language, it did everything a language should, in Latin there's an awful lot of flexibility about word order. You can put the words in many sentences in any number of orders, and they're all perfectly grammatical in Latin. But in Latin there's one thing you can't do. You cannot have a preposition that comes after its object. And that shows up even in the name of the part of speech, preposition, preposition. It has to come before. So in Latin, you could not say the bodies that those souls were frighted from. That would simply be ungrammatical in Latin. On the other hand, it had long been grammatical in English, and countless great English writers had done it. Dryden himself had done it. Dryden himself ended sentences with prepositions. Yeah. But he just made a big production out of despising that practice. He decided that preposition stranding was so objectionable that he actually went back and, you know, quote unquote, corrected all of them that he could find in his own writing. Like the de-Stalinization of Russia, revisionist literature. Sure. Of course, if you talk to any credible linguist today, he or she will tell you that Dryden's time revising his own work would have been much better spent, that there is nothing grammatically incorrect, there's nothing linguistically wrong with stranding prepositions. In fact, there are many times when it's preferable to do so. Lynch cited for me the example of another linguist. Her father had a similar problem with which he simply lived. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really sound like good English, to say that because it more or less distorts the meaning of what you're trying to convey. But not the most awkward construction I've heard. Remember Paul McCartney and Wings, uh, Live and Let Die? Remind me. 
in this never-ending world in which we live in? (laughs) He kind of played both ends against the middle. Yeah, he's trying to have it both ways. You know, my example would be if you were, say, asking somebody on a first date, where are you from? There are any number of ways you could contort that sentence so that it doesn't end with a preposition. Yeah, I used to say, from where do you hail? Really? Yeah, I I had very few second dates, I got to say. I can't imagine why. (laughs) <laughs> well, you have more information than most. We've met. Can we just recap? Mm-hmm. I, I want to see if I have this right. So during the English Civil War, theater is banned. So there's no new plays being written. And then following the Civil War, under the reign of Charles II, the theater reopens, but there's no inventory of playwrights, like the end of the writer's strike in Hollywood. So theater owners are staging reruns, right? Uh, Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and so on. And this infuriates John Dryden because he is a transcendent genius far superior to the mere likes of Shakespeare. Like Franzen. (laughs) You said it this time. I didn't. And so he decides to go after these guys, more or less ad hominem, including Ben Jonson, who he decides to attack for his use of dangling prepositions, which makes him rethink his own use of prepositions, which causes him to expunge his past prepositional errors. And we have been left ever after with the notion that terminal prepositions are bad, bad, bad. And that's the very end of the story. You know, this is like that moment in the Agatha Christie movie when Hercule Poirot looks around the room, says who did it and why, and then points to the attache case and says, I think that's where you'll find the revolver. Right. And in this case, the poet did it. John Dryden is escorted from the drawing room in handcuffs. Yeah. The poet did it. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, live and let live. This ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in and cry Say live and let die Okay, Mike. Well, this is the portion of the podcast where every week we will challenge our Hold list- on one sec, Bob. Before we issue our challenge, I want to add a brief coda to this story. Oh, you're on stage in tights now, like something out of Midsummer Night's Dream? Yes, this is my epilogue. I will break the fourth wall, only this actually has something to do with the rest of the story. We've established that we think of Dryden as the butterfly who flapped his wings 300 plus years ago and caused a ripple effect through the centuries. I think there's this tendency to take remote history and kind of distill it down to these discrete points on the timeline so we can say right there is when that all started. But, you know, it's not always so simple. I corresponded recently with a linguist at the University of Manchester, Nuria Yanez Bauza is her name, who a few years ago published her doctoral dissertation. It was called Preposition Stranding and Prescriptivism in English from 1500 to 1900, A Corpus-Based Approach. Oh, yeah, I saw the movie. You know, I thought the book was better. 
I thought the movie kind of dragged around 1700. <laughs> so Yanez Bauza is a historical linguist with a particular interest in the English preposition. She's done some really fascinating statistical analyses of these terminal prepositions, focusing on the 18th century, going literally decade by decade and tracking the incidence of them as English prescriptivism got stronger and stronger. And as part of her research, she's uncovered a kind of caution against using terminal prepositions that predates Dryden by about 25 years or so. A proto-scold. Yeah, I think of it the way I think of an Oxford English Dictionary earliest citation, which may be the earliest citation that we can find, but it doesn't mean that that person coined that usage. Well, another way of looking at it, Mike, is that others may have previously objected, but it was the John Dryden objection which turned out to influence the entire world right up to my daughter's English teacher who circles her dangling prepositions in red. You ended that sentence with a preposition, bastard. You shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition, At We're from where we don't end our sentences with a preposition. This is a particularly glaring error. It's best not to end a sentence with a preposition. There is some crap up with which I will not put. We were about to introduce the puzzle challenge. Each week, for our listeners, you are going to come up with what I call the lexiconundrum. That's just a placeholder name. Tell us what this week's lexiconundrum is. This first lexiconundrum is a kind of homage to you, Bob. I know that your name, Garfield, was not your ancestor's original name. It used to be... Garfinkel. Yes, your ancestors, presumably upon arriving at, say, Ellis Island. Do you think anyone ever showed up at Ellis Island whose name was... I don't know, Martin Garfield, and he said, I would like to be known as Jaime Garfinkel. (laughs) (laughs) To Judaicize their names? Yeah, Yeah, you don't see much of that. (laughs) So maybe one reason that your ancestors settled on Garfield was that it preserves at least the vowels of their original last name, A-I-E. So my challenge to our listeners is to find a name a name of someone relatively famous, not your cousin, whose first and last name has the vowels A-I-E in that order and no other vowels. And we'll say for the sake of this challenge that the letter Y is not a vowel. So, for example, Charlie Daniels of the Charlie Daniels Band. Both Charlie and Daniels have A-I-E and no other vowels. Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter in the Harry Potter movies. Well, that's good, Mike. So you've not only given us the puzzle, but also the solution. Well, those are two solutions, which are now ineligible. You have to come up with another one. I'm on it. Well, that wraps up the Shakedown Cruise of Lexicon Valley. Mike, thanks for the tour. Thank you, Bob. Thanks also to Jack Lynch, whose book is The Lexicographer's Dilemma, Thank you to Noria Yanez Bauza, who is working on a book right now about the English preposition. And please let us know what you think of the podcast, suggest topics for us, answer our lexiconundrum. Send us an email to slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley, all one word, at gmail.com. All right, Mikey. Later, Gator. <laughs> <laughs>